Support for this podcast comes from the IT experts at CDW, people who get it. At CDW, we get the future workplace works differently. Today's my first day back. Almost forgot what floor we were on. Understandable. But with modern health and safety technology orchestrated by CDW, the future can work better. Technology like thermal screening and occupancy tracking enables employees to walk confidently into the office. Wait, this isn't my floor. Is this even my building? Even if it's been a while. IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash future of work. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Hey guys, you like science? You like learning? We can't cover everything on this podcast. Certainly not as in-depth as I'd like to all of the time. Well, here's an important topic you need to know about. Water. Do you have it? Are you drinking it? Where is it coming from? All sorts of important questions you need to know. There is now the new Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. Waterline podcast aims to bring the latest scientific advances in technological solutions while exploring economic models and identifying key players in the global effort to secure water sources, create efficient water usage, and make water safe for everyone. I just checked out a really cool, interesting episode called Want Not, Waste Not, Wastewater. It's all about what happens to your wastewater. It's going to waste a lot of times, but does it need to? Absolutely not. What happens to all that discarded wastewater? Once treated, it has uh, economic and ecological value that can even drive nations' economies. It could even light up your house. How? Find out on that episode of the Waterline Podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hey guys, thanks for downloading. Thanks for always spreading the word for me. We're getting more listeners each week. Um, I know I told you this week was going to be Chimp Haven episode. We had a few uh, things pop up and we had to bump it back one week. So we're going to be talking about botany today instead. And a uh, very good episode. Then Chimp Haven will be next week. Um, also coming up for my, uh, my stand-up. Before my big fall tour, I have four more um, four more weeks of dates at clubs before my big fall tour in October, which I'll have all of the details for soon. Just trying to lock up every single thing before announcing it. Um, but uh, anyway, I will be coming up this week. I'm in Indianapolis. Um, the following week, I'm in San Francisco. Then um, in the first week of September, I'm in Wilmington. And then after that, Myrtle Beach and all of these clubs. I'm doing both my regular stand-up act and my um, psychedelic show, which is more of like a one-man show. So you can catch both of them if you want, or a whole lot of options. Maybe you're in, more interested in one uh, or the other. Um, and also, 
um, in Wilmington, I'll be doing the second ever live podcast. Uh, we've got lots of feedback from you guys about how much you liked the the live one. And so I'll be back in Wilmington again. Got a bunch of referrals for some other guests from the past guests that were on that one. So no, it's going to be good. I'm actually going to make it the 100th episode of the Here We Are podcast. 100 episodes, everybody. We are almost there. Very excited. Um, anyway, I always uh, I love when you guys write. I love hearing from you guys. Um, I, I just got done doing a bunch of shows in Austin and stuff and had a ton of people coming up that listen to the podcast. And it uh, feels so good to know that people are out there listening and getting into it. So thank you guys and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with botanist Jennifer Blanchard. How are you doing today, Jennifer? Good. Thanks for joining me. Uh, you saw me at um, at a show and you're like, I'm a botanist. You should interview me. And I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. Um, and I'm here in, in New Orleans um, with you and your dog. I'm free. What's your dog's name again? Gumbo. Gumbo, uh, appropriately named uh, New Orleans dog. Um, so, uh, so how long have you been a botanist for? Oh, probably going on nine or ten years now. How did you, what what got you interested in plants? Uh, well, I'm actually from an area, it's the Honey Island Swamp in Pearl River, Louisiana, and it's on the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain. So I grew up um, going on the river during the summer, and I spent a lot of time outdoors, so I learned to know the plants that way walking through the woods and things so and then when did you um so so what um what, what's I, your history how did you it, so when you went to college how did you decide it it's crazy because when i started college my goal was to be a teacher in elementary ed with concentration in science and i started out going to school for that. And then I decided I didn't like being stuck in a classroom. I wanted to be able to be outdoors because that was my interest. And so I switched gears to um, environmental biology. I have a bachelor's in environmental biology from USM and that's Southern Mississippi. And so I started going to school with more of a focus on wetland science. And I had a geology teacher who um, said that I should probably take some geology classes if I was going to be a wetland scientist. Mm -hmm. So I started working in the geology department doing wetland delineation, but I did the plant identification on that side of things, looking at hydric Where was this? That was um, the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg. All right, so you, you were looking at woodland plants? Wetland plants, wet, wetland yeah. Plants, yeah. Wetland delineation, it's where you go out and you um, establish where the boundary of the wetland begins and ends, and that's looking at soils and vegetation. 
what defines a wetland exactly? Where where is that border? Is it is well, there a straight line? You just go this no, is where it's, it's not stops. a straight line at all. It's a really curvy, crazy line, and it also depends a lot on elevation. You know, depressions, things like that, and there are different types of wetlands. So, um, but I had no idea there's different types of what are the types of wetlands? Well, there's um, marshes, there's fins, there's ephemeral wetlands, which are they are wet only certain times of the year. Um, and then here, you know, we have a lot of coast. Well, actually, Louisiana has the greatest amount of um, tidally influenced coastal wetlands of any Gulf state. On the Gulf of Mexico, Florida, of course, has, you know, the Atlantic side and the Gulf side. But if you're just looking at Gulf side, Louisiana has the greatest amount of wetlands of any Gulf state. So and we have freshwater um, hardwood cypress swamps. And then we have and those are freshwater wetlands. And then we have kind of an intermediate brackish area where it's salt and freshwater coming together. And then you have salt marshes and. Um, then, of course, you have barrier islands and coastal dune ecology things. So lots of different wetland environments. But you look at the soils and the plants in a wetland to identify the boundary of a wetland. And that's primarily done now for um, construction. Mm -hmm. You have to establish, are there wetlands? And if so, what are the boundaries? And then there may be some mitigation where you actually have to buy or, you know, purchase wetlands in a bank to compensate for the impact you're making on the wetlands in that. Buy them in a bank? What's that? Well, they have wetland banks. So they have, you know, property that's owned and it's wetlands. And so if you're going to build on wetlands on your property, then you have to do some form of mitigation. So you'd have to invest in a, a bank of wetlands somewhere else. Oh, uh, I see. Um, to reduce impact. Right. So because what what's kind of the importance of of wetlands? In oh general? My God. That's a very, very big, broad question. <laughs> We'd be I know. talking for three hours <laughs> or longer. Good. Like Get wetlands going. are so important because number one, um, well, looking at just Louisiana, okay, but all wetlands are filters, so they actually clean water systems. They're like giant um, filters that they have microbes in their soils that can break down pollutants, chemicals, and make them less harmful mm. to... They often smell like filters. They do, but that's the methane that they're giving off. That's the bacteria that's in the soil are producing methane as a byproduct of breaking down these other chemicals. Mm. So, And also the vegetation, the plants, can take up um, toxins out of the soil and store it in their tissues. When I was at, uh, after USM, I went to UNO for graduate school, and um, that was in the geology department that had been renamed post-Katrina Earth and Environmental Science Department. And when I was at UNO, I wanted to look at mercury in wetlands and how plants took up mercury in soils. How does the mercury get there in the first place? From Oh, from industry. Yeah. Yeah, industry, you know, um, paper mills and chemical plants and... They're always on 
located on waterways because they have a great deal of affluent and the affluent is supposed to be treated but what's affluent affluent is the the water the liquid runoff from the process of creating paper Mm, yeah so this could be an in-depth conversation no that's great wonderful (laughs) this is I, i mean anytime uh, anyone that's ever driven by a paper plant knows it because yeah, it is well, crazy that's, smell. That's the process of breaking down the paper. So they start out with a mixture um, of it's called white liquor and it's like sodium hydroxide and some other base that I can't think of right now. White liquor is a cool name. <laughs> it sounds cool, but it's really <laughs> nasty Noxus stuff. And so it breaks down the trees, the pulp, the particles into um, lignin and pulp. And then they will take the lignin off of that. And, and that's, um, you know, trees are full of resin and stuff. So it's all this resinous black stuff and it's been treated with a base. So um, it's a, a basic solution and that becomes black liquor. Mm. so white liquor goes to black liquor once the trees have been broken down and then they take the pulp and they press it into cardboard and paper bags and boxes and everything else that people use Mm. Um, and then if you're going to make paper that you would write on they would treat it with bleach and or even tissue paper you know they treat it with bleach so it's a really nasty process they're using some things to uh, create the paper that in the end, are still there in this affluent, in this liquid. Mm-hmm. And so they usually push that out into aeration ponds, and the idea is that the solids will settle and that they'll aerate them and that over time the chemicals that are present will break down. But a lot of those chemicals are still there. Mm. And so, what's the effect then? Well, <laughs> if it's not released into the environment... <laughs> Not a whole lot. It sits in an aeration pond. But um, back in 2011, uh, where I'm from on the Pearl River, the river started to turn black in August. Um, And nobody knew what was going on. And the fish started to die. And they're popping up everywhere. And all of the um, freshwater mussels and uh, other animals were washing up on the sandbars and my dad called me because I'm a scientist and he said, Jenny, what's going on here? You know, the river's turning black. It's black up at Walkeye Bluff. What's going on? I'm like, it's gotta be the paper mill. I, you know, but I don't know. So let me come out there and I'll take some water samples. See the water was when I went out there and took some water samples, it was basic. So it was the paper mill and it, Made the news because it was a really smelly, nasty mess with all of these dead fish everywhere. But the um, the paper mill denied it at first for the first day or two, and then they had to admit that they had an accidental release of black liquor into the river. Well, they have this pipe that goes down into the bottom of the river, and it's been there forever. It's pipe number one, and it's been there forever. And it comes out of the paper mill, goes down to the bottom of the river. And, you know, I've told people that they dump affluent into the river. And it's supposed to be, according to their permit, treated affluent. But this was untreated affluent. Mm. 
And so it's really um, high in uh, pulp. So it creates a biological oxygen demand or what they call BOD. And so all these uh, bacteria start to feed on that pulp and then they decrease the oxygen level in the water which is already low in August with low water in a river. It's summer. The river gets low. There's not a lot of dissolved oxygen. Um, so the bacteria are feeding and they're also consuming oxygen and they, they decrease um, the amount of oxygen that's available for aquatic wildlife. Mm. So the fish start to suffocate. And also that basic solution, you can imagine like if I were to you know, douse you in bleach. Yeah. Bleach is like a 13 on the pH scale. This was like probably nine or 10, but still pretty nasty stuff. And it was moving as a slug along the bottom of the river. And so it was just killing everything. People were probably eating the fish before they realized. Yeah. And people today, my sister offered for us to go out on the river, you know, and go on a sandbar and go swimming. So I could show you the swamp and all of the plants and things. Um, We've swam on the river and ate the catfish out of that river our whole lives, Mm -hmm. you know, so it definitely people were out on the river and actually some people did have skin reactions to the water um, when it happened, when the release happened. Mm. Um, But so the, the end of it is that, you know, hundreds, thousands of fish were killed and freshwater mussels in the river and the paper mill denied releasing it, then admitted that they had released it. And so this big investigation had to occur. And, um, you know, they found out they had released untreated affluent into the river and caused this fish kill. So the company Temple Inland that had the paper mill at the time, um, they paid for a cleanup. People came out and collected the fish and they were supposed to count the fish and record the species that were killed. Now, one sandbar had two dead gulf sturgeon on it. So gulf sturgeon is an endangered species. They um, have a population like 250 in the Gulf of Mexico. And they're um, fish that will spawn in freshwater. So they come into the Pearl River and the Pascagoula River and only those two rivers to spawn but um, so those fish, there's a pretty high fine for um, killing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say it's $25,000 a fish. Mm. Not sure on that. You have to check me on that one. That's okay. But so, and then. All, all the listeners are, are now <laughs> quickly uh-oh. Googling. Do, no, uh, that's, uh, well, now maybe they are. But no. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, go on. Yeah. So the, the Gulf sturgeon. When recorded, I think they might have admitted to killing 26 individuals, but I'm sure the numbers were much higher because if you were to go on the river or even, you know, look at a river, there's a sandbar around every corner. If there were two on one sandbar, probability, you know, basic calculation, probably more than 26 And probably many that were affected that didn't die and no one ever found out about. Yeah, well, and also when the paper mill is the company paying the company for the cleanup and paying for the records, then, you know, there's that. But So that's uh, how I started the Honey Island Conservation Program 
it's a nonprofit that we just do outreach, educational outreach, and we do a cleanup every year of the wetlands, the swamp, and Honey Island Swamp, where I'm from. But that's a long story of how I got interested in. So what's so? What are the wetlands filtering if when it's not like man-made stuff that that they're filtering? What are they? Well, the wetlands would filter out sediment. Hmm. Um, they actually need sediment. That's a problem here in coastal Louisiana is that we've altered the Mississippi River so much so that there is not a, a sediment delivery to our coastal wetlands like there used to be. I don't know if you're familiar, but there's um, a process called delta switching. So the Mississippi River, its fourth largest river delta, I think, in the world, um, it historically would switch its delta. So, you know, the the water would flow out, deposit sediment, and as that had deposition, then the delta would change its path. And so there was like the Tush Delta, the Belize Delta is the current delta. Um, oh, I can't think of them Several all. Others. But there is like probably six deltas that... So where we're at right now was all built by the St. Bernard Delta. And the only two deltas where there's any land building going on now is the Belize Delta and the Chafalaya Basin Delta. Um, And that's because the Chafalaya is actually a diversion project. So there's some building down there from sediment delivery. So the, the threats to our coastal wetlands are... Um, this lack of sediment delivery from the Mississippi River. And so that, because we don't get the sediment delivered, the wetlands can't rebuild themselves. And then they start to sink or subside into the Gulf of Mexico and wash away. The other thing is that we have a huge industry, I'm sure you're familiar with um, oil and gas here. So the oil and gas companies have cut navigational canals and pipeline canals all throughout our coastal wetlands. And so that has allowed salt water from the Gulf of Mexico to move further inland because the salt water is actually denser, so it creates a wedge and it can move under the fresh water further inland as you cut these canals that allowed that water to move. Um, so we have saltwater intrusion, subsidence, a lack of sediment delivery, and um, than pollution and other anthropogenic effects. Hmm. So what, what kind of action is um, the, the organization um, trying to do to, um, to help the wetlands and offset this? Is, is it just, uh, uh, you're just you're trying to educate people on? Yeah, this? that's primarily like where I come from is the idea that if we educate people, they'll have a better understanding of the environment and why we need to protect it. Um, So we were talking about my college experience. You know, I I went from an education major to an environmental biology major and then wanted to do wetland science. And I went to, um, I finished at USM and I went to UNO for my master's degree in earth and environmental science, but I was in a geology department basically. Um, So I learned a lot about coastal restoration management, you know, uh, deltaic geology, alluvial systems, 
Um, what are alluvial systems? And that's alluvium is the sediment delivery. Oh, you know? okay. So yeah. like all this movement of sediment and wetland building. And um, I was looking at the mercury in wetlands and how plants take that up. So I was looking at soils and roots and shoots and digesting them in a lab and running them for mercury concentration to see if there was a difference between the different parts of the plants. But I didn't have funding, you know, as a grad student, if you don't have funding, forget it. Like it's not going to happen. So I moved to a different project and I was working under a professor looking at um, soil respiration of greenhouse gases and saltwater intruded cypress swamps in Savannah, Georgia for a while and uh, looking at mini rhizotron data also, which is the small roots of plants that how, how do roots um, behave, I guess. Yeah. It's, it, <laughs> no, it's interesting how, how roots do behave though. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, I've, I don't, this is not my strong suit um, at all, but I've seen a few documentaries on how kind of plants sort of communicate with one another mm-hmm. and how, how roots can like take over other roots. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's fascinating. Or plants can release toxins to kill the other plants around them. Phytotoxins. Yeah. yeah. This, even plants are at war. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the survival of the fittest, right. right? Like, we have to survive, so whatever it takes, you know? Yeah, um, so uh, I, so you, you've also done a lot of work with pollination, right? Yeah, I worked for, um, well, in grad school, I went to work on Fort Polk, and that's in West Louisiana. It's actually a military base. And I was working for Colorado State University. They have a contract. It's um, a, a department called CEMEL, which is C-E-M-M-L, Center for Environmental Management of Military Lands. That's a long one. Mm-hmm. But so I Catchy, worked, though. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I left, um, I left for a summer just to do summer field work, right, under Dr. Charles Allen, who is... Uh, an author that of several books of Louisiana flora. Okay. So I um, went to work for him for a summer and then I took a permanent job there at Fort Polk and it was botany research. It was just going out to these um, compartments uh, on the military land and identifying if there were any rare plants, um, any invasive species that needed to be handled and then also uh champion trees which are really big trees historical trees oh that's just a species of tree well no it's it's a champion tree is a big tree for that species so we would identify the champions on the military property and also like i said the rare plants and invasive plants so that the rare plants could be protective in the invasive plants we could go back and try and get rid of them take them out Hmm. So, um, but we, we did all that research so that, um, with the forestry that they do on the base, they sell off these, uh, trees on the base, they harvest and they replant. We could protect the rare plants from being eradicated in that process. So we would, you know, delineate where they were, line up our maps with forestry sales, and then they would protect them, um, by moving the boundary or relocating the plant if they had to. Uh, So that's what I did at Fort Polk. And then from there, I went to um, work 
for the pollinator partnership. So the pollinator partnership, they had an ad like on Craigslist for a botanist. I'm like, okay, I can do that. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I, um, met with them and it was also very similar to what I did at Fort Polk, um, going out into managed pine forest. So it's field work. Like I'm, you know, I'm not the PhD researcher in a lab somewhere. I'm the behind the scenes person on the ground going out and collecting data. So the pol- rustling gators and whatnot. <laughs> no. no rustling gators. No rustling gators. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> maybe like trying not to get bit by a cottonmouth or a copperhead, but no <laughs> wrestling gators from me. No. Uh, but I would go out and do. Uh, we basically were looking at on these managed pine forests. They were uh, storing bees, agricultural honeybees. And they wanted to know um, the owner of the property, which is a, a paper company, actually, Greif. Um, they wanted to know how does this affect the natural landscape by storing these agricultural honeybees there? The agricultural honeybees travel all over the world or United States um, pollinating crops and so when so they're don't, not don't like companies take just huge like semi trucks yeah, filled with bees exactly. and they go around to different um like farms and whatnot whoever wherever they're needed exactly and when the bees weren't working pollinating crops they needed a place to store them it was a um a beekeeper out of past christian heine farms mr Hines. he um had a contract with greif to store the bees on their land they wanted to know how is this going to affect the landscape. So Pollinator Partnership was called in as a partnership with um, Greif to do this research. And so what they wanted me to do was to go out and set up an experiment where we would um, have a certain number of species. We had about 13 that we were looking at. And we would do a pollinator exclusion experiment where... I would count the blossoms on one branch of a plant and I would tag it and then I would count the unopened blossoms for both of those unopened blossoms on another branch. But this time I would cover it with a mesh bag. It's really a paint straining bag, but um, I would cover it and seal that so that pollinators, bees, could not get in to pollinate those flowers and look at, okay, does this plant, is it pollinator dependent? Does it need a pollinator to produce fruit? That was the first question for the species that we were looking at. And then um, when I would come back, I would count the number of fruit and then I would weigh the fruit to see if the fruit was um and from one site where there were bees, if that fruit had any kind of significant difference versus a site where there wasn't bees. So there were sites where there were bees, there were sites where there wasn't bees present, and then I was looking at different species of plants. Out of the 13 species we were looking at, there was only one that could reproduce um, asex- or sex, not self-sex. That was uh, right. Cirilla racemiflora, which is um, just a tie tie tree. 
um, it, it can actually, it's wind pollination. So it's not pollinator dependent. But every other species we looked at, which was um, some forms of like native blueberries or what we call huckleberries. They're really small blueberries. Um, vaccinium is the genus. We were looking at different species of vaccinium and uh, different species of holly, ilex. So looking to see these differences and how it's affecting the environment. And they had a whole separate insect guy doing the insect side of things, you know, is there competition between native pollinators and the honeybees mm. on this project. And so, but what we did find was that the sites where bees were present were more productive. And bees, the agricultural honeybees that were brought into this native landscape were actually creating a more productive ecosystem more productive in the amount of fruit and the weight of fruit that we were seeing. And so that is beneficial for the wildlife there, which is also important because they have um, hunting leases out there where people go and hunt deer and turkey and other um, wildlife. So to have the bees there, they, they wanted to know what was the effect. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? And they found that it was actually good. Mm. Um, so it, is it like particular species of bees or, or does it not matter? Is it just a matter of just getting a bee that will move from plant to plant? And You mean for a pollinator? Yeah, oh, yeah. Pollinators are not just bees. I think people think that, that pollinators are just bees. No, no, no. There's so many different species of wildlife that are pollinators. There's bats, there's birds, there's bees, beetles. I found that the beetles, actually little soldier beetles, were pollinating some of the um, Ilex species, or Ilex coriaceae. It's just a holly species, but the the little soldier beetles, because I, was, I would bag it and I'd come back and there'd be fruit. And I'm like, but this one, there should be no fruit. Mm-hmm. I bagged it. And then I realized those beetles were inside the bag when... I bagged it, so they pollinated the plant. So the just tiny little pollinators, but butterflies, moths, you know, you name it, birds even can be pollinators. So I think that's kind of a misconception that pollinators are just bees. Even wasps are pollinators, and it upsets me so much when I see people with those fly trap, whatever, wasp traps, you know, where they have the liquid in the glass because they're killing something that's important to our ecosystem. Yeah, I always thought that with the, uh, with, the with like the hummingbirds where people put out the, the feeders, isn't that interfering with, with all the pollination or... It's like that a bird feeder. Uh, but so we'd have to look at that a little yeah, further yeah, right, as right. scientists. We'd have to see, is this preventing the honey, hummingbird from pollinating? Because if they don't need the to go plants. out and look for resources as much, if that's all just given to them, I yeah. think it would have some effect. But they travel. Okay. Birds travel a lot. So maybe they go through an area where there's not a, an abundant amount of, of food, nourishment, nectar for them. But then they come to an area where, you know, you have a house where somebody has a hummingbird feeder. It's mm. probably like having one plant, really, in the oh, whole okay. scheme of things. Um, Dr. Allen, though, his place is like an airport for hummingbirds. He's got hummingbird feeders everywhere. Mm. But uh, they... the the bees specifically, they will travel up to a mile if there's good food 
nutrition for them, nectar. Um, but they, if there isn't, they'll travel about five miles looking for food. Now, birds, they're migratory and they move, you know, all over the place. Um, of course, there's some species that don't migrate, but they have a little bit more mobility, I think, than the, the bees, really. They kind of stay in one area. Hmm. So what is the, um, the pollinator partnership currently working on? Well, they do research, all kinds of research projects all over the United States. Because this is the charity that we're promoting yeah. this week, right? They, so. they do research all over the United States and Canada, North America, really. Um, and they also do outreach, and they even have a Be Smart school garden kit that educators can access um, where it has actual you know, curriculum already in place so an educator can just integrate that into the classroom to teach their students about pollinators and plants and the importance of that to people. Hmm. What, um, what out of all the work that you've done, what was, uh, what was your, what was your favorite and what was your, what was your least favorite? Were there any, you didn't like being cooped up inside. You liked being outdoors a lot. Yeah. Were there any like just because you liked the area a lot or something like that or or something particular about the research? Well, I I've done a lot of research because I we haven't even talked about it. I worked with uh after Katrina, I worked with um Dr. Don Wesson out of Tulane Tropical Medicine and we were looking at um mosquito populations post Katrina. This was in 2006. And uh, so looking at mosquito populations post-Katrina and um, we were also looking at the incidence of West Nile encephalitis and, you know, how did that relate? There were two papers published on that work. And then I also did some work looking at um, triatomas. And I think that even though it was not botany work, it was insect work. That was some interesting research that I had done. But my favorite by far probably is working with Dr. Allen in Fort Polk, doing the um, vegetation mapping and, you know, rare plant studies out there. Um, that's where I did my thesis was out in Fort Polk with Dr. Allen. I looked at a plant. It's nothing significant really or at least we don't know anything more about it there's never been any studies on it. it's called marshallia trinervia it's just a little flower wetland flower that i liked but um it had a, a distribution that was unexplainable so we went out to try and figure out what were the differences where it was found and where it wasn't found and dr allen he's a crazy character and he's probably you know i've been fortunate to work with a lot of really um, intelligent people and he's a genius I mean so it was you know but he's kind of crazy too I think you have to be if you're a genius right so I think so like, maybe a little bit <laughs> <laughs> so he has all these puns and one-liners he makes jokes all the time you know like um so I was curious what uh what what is the what was the effect on Katrina and the, and the mosquito population oh the um research that we did at Tulane that they they found a higher incidence of West Nile post-Katrina because um, you know that most of the city, not all of the city, that's another misconception people have, most of the city was um, flooded after Katrina. Um, and so a lot of uh, 
swimming pools filled up with water. People were not coming back to the city after Katrina. Um, some of them because they were displaced, you know, and once you get to another state and you're working and your kids are in school, you can't come back right away. So we were actually out in New Orleans. You wouldn't even recognize it now today from what it was, but we were out in different neighborhoods in New Orleans, uptown Broadmoor. um, And we were looking at these populations of mosquitoes by putting out um, traps and, and, counting populations through egg counts and things like that. But we, the, the places that we were going to, they were behind someone's house, but it was a jungle. You know, the, the vegetation had overgrown. Nobody had been there to care for it, you know. And then the swimming pools were all full of water from the flooding in Katrina. And so those were full of mosquito larvae. So they actually, even a separate study, nothing with us, but they had people going and putting gambusia, which is a mosquito fish, they eat the larvae, into the swimming pools to try and bring those populations down. So with the the incidence of West Nile post-Katrina, it was found to be higher, and that was probably a relationship of a couple things, you know, people being outside more, mm-hmm. you know, working in their yards trying to clear the debris and and clean up their property. Um, But then also the population explosion because of all this available water for them to breed. Mosquitoes lay their eggs in water, and um, it's a really short uh, time period for them to develop through their life cycle. So they start as eggs, and then they're um, pupa, and then they're an adult. And... The, well, eggs, larvae, pupa, adults, sorry. It's a four-step life cycle. But so it, it happens pretty rapidly. And, um, you know, the research could talk about it forever. I don't know. But what's, we, I'm curious, what's the <laughs> usefulness of mosquitoes? Because I am from Wisconsin and I hate mosquitoes, <laughs> of course. Well, they're actually food for other insects. Oh, bats and, right. Uh, or, or, well, and or, dragonflies and eat the, yeah. them. Um, right. You know, so they're, they are part of the food chain right. for other insects. They're a nuisance for us, but they're, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they're delicious to somebody, right? right. So <laughs> that's their purpose primarily. And then they're also, you know, vectors mm. of disease for us. So that's a huge problem. You know, not just West Nile, but malaria. And um, so it... The research that I did at Tulane, they were testing a, a trap, and it. I don't know how much I'm supposed to talk about that. That's fine. We don't know. We can move on if you want. Um, it's probably been published by now. That's <laughs> but, fine. Um, uh, let's just move on. You're um, you're big into uh, herbal teas. I'm a big tea person. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I uh, very much. I'm I'm a more of a yerba mate man. I've got some of that up there. I like, you like uh, glass of tea. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> I um, I like. I, I get in arguments with people. Is it pronounced rooibos? Oh. Or rubus. I think tea? I, I think it's rooibos and people it's, it's it's spelled like rooibos so I thought maybe you'd know I get in arguments with pronunciation people. is not our specialty here in the south as uh, <laughs> most people would probably notice like I not think my specialty I met either, somebody the other day in the French Quarter and I told them that I was going to an art opening on Burgundy and they were like Burgundy you mean Burgundy and I was like no here it's Burgundy so 
pronunciation, like you know, everywhere. yeah, but yeah, it's, it's however you want to say it. <laughs> so, but you're, you're big into like, um, kind of, um, plant medicines yeah, right, and I, herbal. My, I, I teach, I teach high school now, um, biology and my students, I try to stress to them the importance of plants. I actually make them do a plant collection and they hate me for it, but they'll love me for it one day, but they hate me for it at the time. And, um, plants are everything without plants. We wouldn't be here. You know, that they are the foundation for all of our ecosystems. You know, we have some organism is eating a plant and then we're eating that, you know, I, talked to my sister last night and said okay if you're going to eat a steak what does that animal eat yeah grass you know if you're going to eat fish what does that animal eat well it probably eats smaller fish but those smaller fish eat you know shrimp that are eating plants in the water you know so it's plants are everything to me and people you know i've had a lot of arguments you said you had arguments on pronunciation i have arguments with people about um the the effectiveness of herbal medicine you know they say there's you know no research to support it well they must not be reading the same scientific papers that i'm reading because you know dandelion root they have papers on that that it actually does decrease um enzymes in the liver that so it actually makes your liver function better you know so and that's dandelion root tea i've got some of that up there if you need and who doesn't like dandelions? It's delicious, actually, though. <laughs> uh, I've never had dandelion tea. I will make you some. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, this is an exciting <laughs> day for me. You're getting free tea. <laughs> no, but, and lavender, I use lavender all the time. I use lavender in, you know, my bath. If I have a headache, I can just breathe it and it helps to alleviate that. Um, it relaxes you chamomile to sleep sometimes um, peppermint tea it helps with stomach if your stomach's bothering you peppermint they know that it helps with your stomach so lots of different things and I even go out and harvest I kind of forage a little bit um, for teas and things so go out and get uh, like sweet clover the purple clover it's more pink but it, they call it purple clover or red clover. And it um, the heads of it, you don't have to sweeten the tea. You just steep them, and it's a nice, sweet tea to drink. So, But, yeah, plants have been used for, I don't know, hundreds of years to treat ailments. Most of the medicines we have were originally extracted from some plant. Right. Yeah, of course. And I don't think people understand that. The argumentative ones are like, oh, this hippy-dippy stuff you're talking about, you know, there's no data to support that. Well, yeah. excuse me, but aspirin actually came from um, the aspen or willow tree, you know, originally. That's where it came from, the bark of that tree. They have natural novocaines. When I was in Fort Polk, there's a toothache tree and there's also a toothache grass that if you chew on it, it makes your mouth numb. It's pretty crazy. So most of the medicines that we have originated from plants. We've just learned how to synthesize them with the chemical compounds in the lab so we no longer have to go out and harvest the plants. But, you know, look at ginseng populations. People have been digging up ginseng for, you know, a hundred years for the roots and decimated the population of those trees. So, And what is it you hear a lot about that? What, what is that good for? Energy and memory. 
and things like that. The ginseng is more of an energy thing. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, plants are, I, I think a lot of people don't realize all energy comes from the sun. Plants figured out how to store this energy. And then we figured out we could eat these plants and yeah. get the energy from there. Well, and I tell my students about, you know, I, I teach them basic biology. So we talk about photosynthesis. And I'm like, we're so lucky that plants are here because they're not trying to make oxygen, people. They're trying to make glucose. Mm -hmm. And the byproduct of that is six molecules of oxygen. Isn't that nice? We get to breathe. That's how we were able to evolve onto land is because of plants. Yeah, breathing's super cool. It's all right (laughs) (laughs) for most people. It's, uh, well, it's definitely not cool when you're not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is there, um, I, you know, I, as someone who's gone and I love teas and as someone who's gone, um, a little back and forth with, because I think some of, I do think some of the, just like every single, um, field of science, um, I do think some of the herbalists and, and, um, new age it can be a, a little dogmatic in in you know the usefulness of, of some plant like not every plant might be as useful as uh, people are pitching it you know yeah um is there a good book that you would uh recommend to the listeners that is kind of like digestible that that um if if people are into want to learn a little more about say herbal supplements or well here in louisiana i'd have to recommend dr allen's book which is the edible plants of the gulf south so like as far as what plants can you eat that are out in nature um this would be the book that i'd probably recommend but then like looking at um learning about plants and their uses traditionally probably of plants and people that's the book i would recommend and then the the use of plants to treat ailments, you need a good book on medicinal plants. Um, and I think I just have a Falcon series mm. book there. So for that, um, but there is a ton of, of books to read about plants and their uses and the importance of them in our cultures and society. So since since the um, uh, since we're plugging the the pollinator partnership, um, what can listeners do to find out more and if they want to contribute and and what what um, what's kind of the the future of what what are the goals for the pollinator partnership that they're working towards? Well, of course, with any nonprofit donations, you know, donating. Um, getting involved in the they do annual pollinator weeks in the different states and getting um all of the 50 states to have some activity in that is something that they promote um the educators can access the be smart school garden kit and start integrating that into their classroom i know in my classroom you know i do the plant collection but we also have an ecology club and the ecology club our goal is to build a school garden so we're raising funds for that but um the pollinator partnership to to help support them you can go to their website and want to say it's um the poll- I think pollinatorpartnership.org. It'll be on the okay. herewearepodcast.com yeah. website. People okay. can click on the link from there. And on their website, they have lots of different um, 
tabs that you can pull down to help support, you know, either by donation or purchasing the curriculum or other posters and things that they sell to raise funds to continue their research and their outreach throughout the United States and North America. Yeah, I think it just uh, all this stuff just can can make um, what might seem like sometimes mundane in life a, a bit more interesting. Like I, I was just I spent some time out at a, a beach. I was walking along a beach with some friends of mine and one of them was a geologist and he was kind of pointing out a bunch of rocks and you know going normally i'd be walking right by not paying any attention and i always i i enjoy um i enjoy hiking i always kind of wish that i had a good botanist with me to point out um various things i just think it makes life more interesting i do it all the time it's one of those things that as a scientist it's kind of like i'm it's my exercise for my mind to walk through the swamp or, you know, on a trail and try and identify as many plants as I can, you know, so, but some people, I mean, you'd be into that maybe, but some people are like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit much for them. That's uh-huh. understandable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a bit much for people sometimes and I don't know that much about any particular subject, um, but I will talk people's ears off anyway. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that, uh, I think it's just, uh, I think it's fascinating. It's just I talk a lot about on the program of just the kind of fractal nature of life that yeah. the closer you look at things, the more it opens up and there's just no bottom to the wealth of information that you can observe and learn more That's, about. You know, as a teacher, my students come back and they say, you know, Miss Blanchard, I, I didn't know there were so many plants. Now I see plants everywhere. It's like, they've always been there. <laughs> you just needed someone to spark your interest in them, you yeah. know? And so... Is there... Do you have a recommendation for a good, like, starter botany um, book for for people that know absolutely nothing about botany, want to learn a little bit about plants? I don't mean to put you on the spot here. Uh, um, <laughs> well, um, I know, like, if you're just wanting to spark your interest in botany, yeah. Amy Stewart, she has a couple of books on botany. So she's got uh, Wicked Plants, which is all about, you know, plants that are used that have toxins in them that you could you know, use for malicious <laughs> behaviors. Yeah, poisons yeah. and intoxicants and things like that. So Wicked Plants is kind of an interesting read. And then she's got another one. It's um, The Drunken Botanist. If you like to do a little mixology, that's something that, you know, if you don't know a lot about plants, it might be fun to have those books because they're kind of more from the fun side of things. Yeah, than, most people are into drinking. <laughs> yeah, you know, so yeah, I would probably recommend those too. Those are good starter books if you want to start learning about plants but you can go you know anywhere and find a book on plant or go to like a um i don't i went to a sporting goods supply store like when i go traveling um i don't want to like pitch for rei but i go in there and i get a field guide for the local flora Mm -hmm. and then when i go out on the trail i'll have that and it's funny because once you know some of the plant families, you'll recognize them in other places. It might be a different species, but you'll recognize the plant. So just going to like a camping supply store and getting a field guide to the local flora or wildflowers, you know, if that's what you like, that's a good idea to get started and um, learning about the plants and Audubon guides, all of the Audubon guides. I have those, you know, for they have 
one for every kind of thing you can imagine. Plants, trees, birds, everything. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much. Let's get you one more quick little plug. I'm at your house right now, and you have a pottery studio. Yeah. Uh, you're into pottery. <laughs> and We're- you made a joke about people last night. <laughs> Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I could have used a different example. Yeah, I forgot you were in the audience and I already knew that you're into pottery. Yeah, I just have a joke in my act about people having these supposed life uh, transformational experiences from ayahuasca, which is a psychedelic that people go down to Peru and realize that they they were uh, they're stuck in a rut in their cubicle job and they need to do pottery or whatever. It was just a silly <laughs> example. No ayahuasca was used in the process of my pottery business. <laughs> but um, I actually, when I was young, I've always been an artist. And, you know, my parents did not support that as a professional goal. <laughs> they were like, you cannot make money selling art, you know. But um, that's. So, I think that's all you're going to be able to make money doing eventually. <laughs> the robots are doing yeah. are going to take over and do everything for us, everything and then we're going to have a lot of free time. Yeah. So I um I I wanted to be a potter. I guess in like 2006, I took a couple of classes, like three months, but just learning how to throw on the wheel. But I make um a lot of hand built stuff too, and I paint as well but primarily working in pottery i love making pottery and i integrate plants into a lot of it i'll show you some of the pieces but i'll press leaves into the clay and i even do that in the classroom i take it in when we learn about the history of life and the geologic time scale and um fossils i teach my students how to make faux fossils from plants and other you know found objects that we go around campus collecting and so but yeah, uh, I have a pottery business. It's called Nola Potter, and it's on Facebook. If anyone wants to look at what I make, very cool. A botanist that makes pottery. Uh, that's <laughs> awesome. A, a, a lot of people that are into pottery are also into plants. So I yeah. think that's a pretty good demographic. Too. I think it's yeah. a science. You know, I mean, mixing the glazes and stuff—that's all geology. Mm-hmm. It's chemistry. It's looking at the raw minerals that you would mix to get different colors of glazes. It's nothing at all like painting. You know, it's chemistry. It's mixtures and things and. Well, thank you so much. As as someone who um, just simply does not know much about botany at all, but I'm constantly trying to add diversity to my program, I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, informing my audience and listeners, and I'm, uh, I'm sure... Uh, that uh, that everyone learned a lot. I know I did. So thank you, Jennifer Blanchard, for coming mm-hmm. on the program. And Thanks thank you, me. listeners, for being curious. And I'll talk with you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Like I said, Chimphaven episode will be next week. You can always go to herewearepodcast.com to get more information on all of the past episodes. And check us out at Twitter at here we pod. Talk to you guys next week. Thank you so much. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. 
What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Koff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 